Hello everyone and welcome to a very wonderful storytelling-like episode with someone that I admire so much and as I have just told Wendy, she must be one of the best storytellers that I have heard ever since I'm such a huge content consumer. And the stories that she was just mentioning earlier before starting. So can you guys imagine what you are in for today? Have given me goosebumps more than a few times. Wendy Weiner Runge is an award-winning film producer, writer, entrepreneur, keynote speaker with occasional nickname Sledgehammer of Love. I read this on LinkedIn today and I melted. I needed a few moments to kind of realize what's with this amazing woman because the first interaction that I had with Wendy was again this beautiful, wonderful load of powerful, inspiring, touching stories and wait until you hear a bit about this beautiful project that Wendy and her business partner Noah are putting together and it's my golden blood, something that really deeply moved me. This is an exciting entertainment which will be consumed by a young adult audience on every platform where they currently live. Our engaging storylines, as Wendy says, can help young adults figure out who they are, how to navigate their own complex world and empower them to define who they want to become. And as I was talking to Wendy before, mentioning that using our voice is vital to get those pieces of sand developed into pearls like what I'm wearing today, I always say that there's no coincidence I am truly honored to welcome Wendy on Stories About Fear today. Welcome, Wendy. What a great pleasure to have you. The honor is mine, truly. What a privilege. I am um, so touched by that intro, but I'm so touched that we never know if what we say or put out in social has any impact. I try very hard to one take. I have a thought, and usually it comes to me in the morning, like I'm thinking, that's interesting, and then talk about it, and then put it out there, and I never think about it again. I certainly don't watch it again, I don't think about it. And so that it reached all the way to you, to impact you in some way, is a tremendous compliment, Roxanne, and thank you so much, and I'm honored to be here. So we, you know, when you pick up your phone and you just record a thought, you think it's just that. And if it reaches one person, there was a purpose for it. That's all I want. One person. So that it reached you, it's very special. Thank you. Oh, so. it's a great pleasure, Wendy, because what truly moved me is that when I added you on LinkedIn, you had such a beautiful and genuine and warm way to connect. You were asking these really heartfelt questions. How can I be of service? How can I support you? Which was, wow, now this is a real person, someone that truly wants to serve. And the truth is that 
So many people have stories to share. So many people have this impact that they're carrying through their missions, but they're not yet maybe brave enough to use their voice like we just talked about. People kind of keep quiet. They think that, who am I? I'm no one. I don't need to say anything. I should just be in a corner, not bother anyone. And this was me for 34 years old almost. Wow. And it's so refreshing when someone like you comes over and you sledgehammer everything with love that people really want to know and I want to know although I know I know a bit of your story because I did my research because you got me so curious Wendy can you please tell us all about your story my dear how did you get to be so powerful and loving at the same time that's so like I just want to step back and say okay wow like wow what a description um wow thank you um powerful from one perspective, obnoxious from another perspective. My mother always says, you're not, you're not, um, she says, you're assertive. You're not aggressive. You're assertive. I'm like, okay, I'll go with assertive. Um, so I'm from a, the middle of the Midwest of the United States. I'm literally from a spot almost in the middle of the United States, from Omaha, Nebraska, which is interesting that in Omaha, there's a lot of cowboy, it's kind of a cowboy town in a way and there's a lot of stories that go around i mean it's a a big city half a million people but it's there's a lot of like i mean i was raised on horseback it was just a common thing um and it was um a great place of expression um my uh, henry fonda very marlon brando great actors came out of omaha and they felt very free because you could just it was not very judgmental the town it was very accepting and and uh, and we don't have accents. For some reason, the state of Nebraska, every other state in the union has a kind of a distinctive accent. I don't know how that, I don't know how that's decided. Iowa, which is right next door, or Kansas, which is right south, there's a definitive Kansas accent. Or, but Nebraska, they just skipped them. They just skipped, I don't know. I don't know how that works. So, the, growing up, major, like, Actors and anchor people and, and people on the news always came through Omaha and spent some time there. So they could lose their native accent and they would study the, the they would study the way we would speak because they found it was much more a New Yorker it's very hard to it's hard, hard to shake. But they would come and they would imitate what we would do, how we would speak in the center of the center of the Midwest, and they could go on from there. And so the best way to test how if your accent is there or not is to tell stories. And people just told stories. And certainly the actors and what have you. And, and again, um, my grandparents, my parents, very big Midwesterners and very big storytellers. And so it was a lot of fun to just sit and listen to them. And my grandfather was in World War II and he was a doctor. And I thought for a long time that he had been a doctor in like a surgical unit or something in France. But no, he'd been in charge, put in charge of all the American military kitchens in France to make sure they met the standards of hygiene so the troops wouldn't get sick. 
So while he was in these kitchens, he learned to make strudel and sauces and pies. So my grandmother, for the three years he was over there and didn't see him, was so concerned that he wasn't eating. And he came back and he gained like 30 pounds. And she said, I, I can't believe it. The whole time I was just hoping you'd eat something. I didn't know you were eating French cuisine. He said, all the chefs are French. And so he would tell stories about the people that he met and because it was a very non-combat situation. And he maintained those friendships for the rest of his life. And it was very interesting to hear him speak about that. And so as a little kid, all those stories kind of, you know, bubbled up. And it was what we did. We just sat around and told stories. And then it was, you've got a joke, and you've got a joke, and you've got a story, and you've got this one. And my father is in, my parents are in a nursing home in Seattle, Washington. And my dad will often sit at the front door, just sit there if he's got nothing else to do. And he'll just greet people who walk in. And if they look like they need some, you know, something, my, my father's modus operandi is that everyone that he, he meets, he wants to, them to feel seen. How are you today? How's it going? You know, if they say, oh, how are you? All the better for you asking. Like he would, he lifts up people. People enter a nursing home, they're a little confused about how to go, or, or it's a little bit of a stressful environment for them, or they're older and they're a little confused. And he always greets them warmly with a handshake. Come in, I'm so glad you're here. The desk is over there. He doesn't do that for any other reason than he just craves the opportunity to make people feel seen. My mother, um, her health is a little bit more challenging, but my mother has lived her whole life where she wants everyone that she knows to feel loved. Like she always says to the hair, the woman who cuts her hair, oh, thank you, this looks great, I love you. It's very likely this woman who cut her hair Never heard that. Never knew how to react to that. It was not of her culture. It wasn't. And I was like, I love you so much. This looks great. She just wanted her to feel loved. Everybody that my mom encounters, the nurses, the, the staff, the social workers. Oh, sweetheart, I'll adopt you. I love you. And they, they react so warmly to that. So that's, so I grew up in that kind of Disneyland where there was, there was always people coming into the house I remember once my father went to, went to synagogue on a Sunday morning with my husband and they came home and there was a young man with them who was filthy from head to toe. I mean, just had a backpack and he and a bunch of friends were walking across the country and they get to the middle of the country and there had been nonstop raining, raining, raining for days, 90 degrees, raining mosquitoes. And the man, young man, young, I mean, 20-something, covered in mud. Just wow. everything he owns is wet and gross and rotten and covered in mud. And he didn't know what to do. And as, a, and as a Jewish man, he felt comfortable walking into a synagogue, going into the closest synagogue, taking a cab or a bus to the closest synagogue. And my dad saw him and said, hey, how can I help you? Why don't you go to my house? You'll take a shower. We'll do your laundry. We'll feed you. You know, you'll, you'll eat with us. It'll be, we're going to make a barbecue. It'll be great. The man came home, came to the house. So my husband walks in, my father, my husband looks at me because it's not really his way. My father walks in and goes, oh, here's my friend. And we just met in synagogue and he's, and I'm, you know, and so he went out and bought the man 
stuff. And then at the same time, the guy took a shower and ate lunch and dinner with us, and he slept over the night. And then he rejoined his friends the next day. And my dad did all the laundry and cleaned his shoes and everything. So we talked about this for years, like how obscure. It wasn't just a few, but a few months ago, the man found me on Facebook because he saw a picture of my father. And he said, that's the guy. And he reached out to me on Facebook and he said, I don't know if you remember, and he knew the exact date, July 4th, 19, he said, I was walking cross country and your father brought me home, helped let me clean up, bought me new, some stuff I needed, and, and I and I continued my walk across the country. And after I never forgotten him. I never forgot that kindness. I have children, I have a wife, we you know, we we've we've had great success and I've always been looking for your dad to say thank you. So I was able to go back and give dad the message and connect with them. We don't know. We a little so that kindness that my dad never blinked, never thought about, never looked at the man like the kid, young guy was, oh, anything less, more. He's like, let's just do this. That's how we lived our lives. <laughs> so um, fast forward, I met my husband, Peter, and um, I got married and moved to Minnesota because for 38 winters, I want to say, because we real transplants only count the winters. We don't count the beautiful summers or the lovely springs or the, the picturesque mm. autumn. No, if you are hardcore, you and and when it's zero Fahrenheit Celsius, let's say zero Celsius here in Minnesota in October or November, people put on their coats and their boots and their scarves and their hats and their gloves, and they go out. When it's that exact temperature in February. People walk out in shorts and a t-shirt and they run around the lake. People are crazy here. They embrace winter. They go ice fishing. They do all kinds of crazy things. God bless. Anyway, so I moved here for love. My husband, we own a restaurant. My husband handles that and I do this. I write and produce feature films and television because I like to tell stories. My husband likes to make food and give it to like give it to the staff so that they deliver it. And he said, I, I, I love everything about the restaurant. I'm just not good at talking to the customers. So occasionally I'll get a call where he's hiding in the kitchen. I'll say, can you come over and people? I can't people right now, I'm too busy. And I'll, I'll oh, say, what kind of people? And he said, there's an entire bus of teenagers. I need you to people. I'm like, okay. okay. So I'll go over and people. So um, that's the extent of it. That's all I'm allowed to do. I am not good at that. No one can make a messy kitchen the way I can. It's I'm like Olympic caliber, just terrible. So, um, and then we have four children. And um, I was always involved in marketing or development or something that was involved in storytelling, writing. And then I had the opportunity to someone brought me a script and said, what do you think of the script? He said, I really like it, it's interesting. Having an English literature degree and a theater background, they thought, I guess I was, I mean, someone I didn't know very well, thought I was a logical person to ask. And I said, I think it's very interesting. They said, what do you think of the first 12 pages? 
And so that's a very unique way to enter the story. You really set the character arcs up, and it's really unique. And I hand the script back to him. And he said, pushed it back to me and said, I was thinking about pulling out the first 12 pages and making that as a short film to, to show what we could do and then send it to some, some friends of mine in Hollywood. And I was like, that's great. I said, that's a cool idea. Go ahead. Like pushed it back across the table. And he pushed it across the table again and he said, I was wondering if you would consider executive producing the first 12 pages. So we'll put it, you know, we'll, we'll format it with a lawyer. And I said, and I didn't even know what an executive producer did. did. This is 2007. And I uh, had my kids. They were some little, whatever. My youngest was seven. And I said, what's wrong? My youngest was six. What should be there? And so I said, um, uh, I'll look at it. And then I had to go to the Google and look at what an executive producer does. And it does just what I do. It takes people and projects and it puts them together and you figure out a way to bring in the, the funds and you deliver it like anything else, like dinner, like anything else. Like I could do this. So I said to my husband, I'm just going to do this one. It's over the summer. Just be a lot of fun, a little experience. And then I'm done. Well, he's like, cool. That's great. And so I did it and we delivered it. And the people that he sent it off to, it was very unique and it was very interesting. And we did a graphic novel with it and like to show all the different ancillary products. And he said, um, and his people just didn't have the money, didn't have the bandwidth. And I said, let me take a try. So I went back to my, all my list of people that I've collected. As I mentioned before, I only have three skills in the world and I'm not being self-effacing. I only have three. I can write could tell a pretty good story and I have been blessed and you are so included in this mix to collect the most amazing people who empower us to do what we want to do big big lofty goals call them wigs wild something goals and so you're like okay so I went back to all and I was like hey what about this or this someone that I knew and met maybe once his wife had a college roommate whose father was a big producer in Hollywood. And so I said, okay, would you be so kind to give me his information and I'll say, hey, this came from so-and-so. It's like, great. The wife calls me, yeah, great. Oh, good luck. Fine, done. I do it and then two weeks later I get a phone call. This is really interesting. We'd like to make a deal with you. But the deal was for a feature, but only if I was connected. So I put it because I was the only one they knew on the team. So I said, I guess I just changed my career. And we were going to prepare to shoot the film in Minnesota and a very low budget, but an interesting, lovely piece of work. I'm very proud of it. It's called The Scientist. And I will include the link and you can watch it. It's free on YouTube. I'm happy to give it away. And um, we produced that film and I was the only, I was the only executive producer. And um, it, it kind of came together very quickly and it was very... It's a lovely piece of work. I'm, I'm, we had lovely actors. And, and um, long story short, the film did everything that the Iowa offered incredible incentives. And they invited us down to partake in the incentives because they really saw the very significant economic development rise 
when they had films like Bridges of Madison County and Field of Dreams prior to ours. And they saw that you bring a group of 60 people into a town, you put them in hotels, they have to eat, they have to buy things at the drugstore, they have to, you know, they have to buy shoes. I paid for an emergency dentist because our lead actor had previously had his teeth, front teeth knocked out by Marissa Tomei, who's an Oscar winner. She's very proud of that. Oscar, you could say, she knocked out his, in a, in a wow. she was supposed to, in another film, she said, hit him with a, with a lawn chair and he, she came down early or he rolled too late or whatever and it knocked out his front teeth. So they had to have, so I had to have the bridge glued in on a Sunday morning at nine o'clock. It was very expensive by the way. So you get to this space where like you're, you're, and so they realize, look how much money it brings into these little towns. Now Iowa is notorious. They have a river on each side of the state and they have one that goes right to the middle. And all through, all through the one on the Mississippi, there's the Missouri, and there's one in the middle. And all through those rivers, between them, somewhere every 10 years, they have a 100-year flood. I don't know how that works out mathematically, but they will flood an entire, entire, <coughs> me, entire communities. And so they have to do something while they can to ingest money into those communities. While they're rebuilding, <coughs> excuse me, or, or if they... Um, whatever the scenario is. And so they, this incentive was very generous and they were very intent on bringing more film work to the state. I understand why they did it. I'd worked in economic development and made a lot of sense. There was one man, <coughs> excuse me, talking too fast. Okay, there was one man in the office and he was really overwhelmed. It was a lot of work for him to manage all these projects because they invited everybody. So we did the first project and we submitted everything and they loved it. They said, this is a great, it's a lovely film. It's a really nice project. It was in a very economically disadvantaged area. And so we we're able to hire a lot of local people, electricians and to tell with wardrobe and all kinds of seamstress, like all kinds of people in the area. So it did exactly what they had intended to do the program and then I did a second film with my entertainment attorney and um but the program became so so intense they just accepted almost everybody that came and it became so out of whack unbeknownst to me I'm 250 miles away all I know is I get an email from the executive director film of the film director saying um yes you can or how about this or those things and that was all Indeed, to give a context to everyone, it was Wendy's birthday yesterday. I'm so privileged to have her with us today. Thank you. Okay, so they were overwhelmed, but I wouldn't know that because I'm, my attorneys are working on this, on my projects and everybody's talking to the state and everything's fine until the program collapses and they decide they look at the field, and I had been encouraged to do a lot of projects because they want future projects. There was no sundown. So I had like 11 different projects with other production companies and whatever that, to work with them. Again, in these rural areas, following every single protocol, every rule they had. When the program collapsed, they realized that I had the most outstanding contracts. 
of which they were ratified. When a contract is ratified, you have two people we both signed on it. If one of them cancels the contract, they have to pay the other party. That's the, that's the law. I had $84 million worth of contracts at state. So theoretically, they needed to pay me $42 million for the inconvenience. The truth is, I would never have sued them because I wasn't, the other producers were in the middle of projects and so they wait, you strip this away from us, you cancel it, we spent a lot of money here, we wanna recoup our losses. I hadn't started any of those projects. I had completed two, and the next one was not set to start till for a few months. So I didn't have any losses at that time, but they made the decision never to question me. In the time I was arrested for trumped up charges that they kept dropping and adding and dropping and adding 15 felony counts all stuff, for doing exactly what I was told to do by the state officials. And I went to the highest level. I went to the director of economic development and said, tell us what you want us to do. They're like, yeah, yeah, we'll get back to you. Just do what you're doing, it's great. And I went to the governor's office. And I went and said, just tell us what you want and we'll comply. We don't want to do any, we don't want a dime we don't deserve. We don't want anything, we just want to comply because my parents are from Iowa. My grandparents were from Iowa. We saw, is an opportunity where there's a, I'm going to say this often, where there's a need, there's a seed. We thought they, there's a need. These communities are very, very economically disadvantaged and they need what we're bringing. They need the, the consistency. If you have different projects in different areas, you know, these people are going to uh, go to dentists and they're going to, they're going to go to, you know, hotels and they're going to buy groceries and go to the drugstore. They're going to buy shoes for the kids and buy notebooks and all those things, the things that need to be done. And so we want to participate in that. That was our goal, to be the best partners we could. That said, they completely said, you everything you've done is wrong. And everything, I don't know why you thought you were allowed to do this. Conversely, the state official was also under arrest. So I'm sitting in the exact same seat I was sitting in, when I'd heard that the state official was arrested, and then three days later, I get a phone call. There's a warrant for your arrest in Iowa for X amount of felony charges related to projects that I had never even done, that I that were just contracts. And you, you need to show up in court, and they're going to charge you with these 15 felony counts. I had not had a parking ticket. So I had no, no idea in the world how to facilitate this. Like this is a different state, you know, where I had a year earlier, they welcomed me with open arms. I had all the, all of the, the paperwork that said, this is what we want you to do. We're so proud, we're so excited, we love this. And all of a sudden there's like radio silence and they, the program collapses and they do some alleged investigating and then I'm arrested. So. Because God is so good to me, the last contract I negotiated, there was a three-hour la waiting la lapse time from the time they signed it to the time they got the governor to sign it, or, or the, the official in the Department of Economic Development who had to sign off on it. So I went to have a cup of tea in a coffee shop across from the state capitol, and there was a young man standing, managing the coffee shop. I remember exactly how he looked when he stood 
he was standing with like one foot up and he was talking to his staff and the coffee shop was full of politicians and lobbyists and people. And I just took a table, got a tea, got a cup of tea, sat in the corner. But I watched him because it was so interesting. He knew where every single person was in the restaurant. If they needed anything, they were on it. It was the most incredible level of above and beyond service I've ever seen. I got two thirds of the way through my tea and he brought me a cup of water. And I was so amazed. I, and I said, um, I, I said, uh, do you see films being made, shot down here? And we start talking about that. And he said, yeah, I always wanted to be in film my whole life, but I have, I've almost completed my criminal justice degree. So I had to finish that. And I really am not, I really prefer want to be in film, but I don't, like, I don't know how to switch. It's like, it's a very difficult scenario. So I'm working now and I'm taking classes, but I, I'm, I'm just too classic. I'll need an internship and I'll need to finally pass statistics. He said, I haven't been successful to this point, but I, I, I don't, and then I have my degree. I said, a degree is a great thing to have, but you're also young. And if you work part-time here and you're doing that, and you can also work on a film set. He said, that might be my dream come true. I'd love to see what it looks like from the inside. And I said, here's my card. Send me your resume. And let me know what you what skills you have. And I know a lot of people who are, this is when this, the, when the whole system was still in act going on. And I said, I know a lot of people who are producing here, and they probably would love to have you on set. You know, as an assistant, as a PA, production assistant, something. And you really learn from the inside. Everyone who's ever been on my film sets that have a four-year film degree said to me, I learned more in six weeks on a film set than I learned in four years of college. I probably could have saved $200,000. And I said, uh, you know, I'm sorry to hear that. I knew nothing about film production. And I started my first job as the executive producer. So he got back to me in a few days with his resume. And he was so intent. And so his cover letter was so, I'm so grateful. Thank you for the opportunity. You know, I didn't know who to, I never knew who to ask. And his name is Thomas. And I thought, well, I'm going to do a film in Iowa again. Why would I give this guy away? Like, he does what he's asked to do. He's intent. He's intelligent. And everybody around him is feels, you know, supported. And, um, and he's aware. He's really aware. So that, what a beautiful thing. So I picked up the phone and I called him and I said, I got a kind of a crazy idea. At this time, there's word that Iowa is going to lose their incentive and what have you long before there's any criminal charges. But here he is, a criminal justice major with just two classes short of having his degree. So he's taking all the heavy lifting. And I said, I'm going to, I have a film that's funded, but I'm not going to be able to do it in Iowa. And I'm not sure where else to do it, but I, I'd like to, I'm going to drive up to Canada. And in Winnipeg, they have wonderful incentives, and it's nine hours north. And I'm wondering if you'd like to come to Canada with me. I could really use an assistant, and um, we can just go check it out. And he said, oh, yeah. So he went out and got, I always wanted to go out and leave the country. I've never done that before. I've never. So he went to, got his passport, and he drove to my house. And my kids loved him immediately. So he's a little bit older than my kids, not much. And they loved him immediately. And he was sitting, he sat down, he had a meal with us. And then my kids, my youngest two were like seven and nine. And they were playing Monopoly. You want to play Monopoly? He's like, sure. 
and he's sitting down, he's playing, he's I'm watch, kind of watching, and very respectful, very. And I asked him, I said, so what rules do you usually play Monopoly with? Because everybody has their own rules. And he looked at me and he's like helping them deal and checking the dice and everything. Then I said, I've never played Monopoly. I'm an only child. I didn't really have people to play with when I was a kid. And I was like, oh, I said, my husband's an only child, but he played with his mother. And he said, that's great. My mother-in-law, I said, she was a wonderful woman. He said, my mother has some emotional challenges and she didn't really want to hear from me. So I thought, well, and he's listening to every word my kids say. And it was so interesting that he had done the work on himself to overcome the challenges early. So sure enough, we go up to Canada. You know, when you go to these film commissions, they would put you in a fine hotel. They put us both in hotel rooms and we spent a couple days in Quebec. And I said, you know, if you are happy in Des Moines, that's great. Iowa, that's great, but there's no films there. You know, but you could come to work for me. And he said, I'll do it. So he moved everything he owned in his car and he moved up to Minnesota. And I said, until we get going, um, if he's okay, there's a spare bedroom. Are you okay with that? He said, absolutely. Sure enough, um, we didn't get going. I get arrested and with a ton of charges. And I went to, I said, I need to speak to you. And he said, I already heard my mother just called me. It's all over the news. And he said, if you can prove to me that you're innocent, I'll stay and help you. And I was like, yeah, I can prove it. And I looked, we looked at the charges and they said, you did this without this. And I said, here's the email that gave me, here's the paperwork that told me to do this. I went through everything and he said, you are innocent and they are railroading you and I'll stay with you. And so he and I picked an attorney and went through court, so many court like hearings that were just arduous. I drive 250 miles to go down for a three minute court hearing. Okay, we're gonna set the state of so and so you. And they knew it, they were just doing it. And I, when I was arraigned, I remember standing outside the courthouse, court, the courtroom, and the journalists and a bunch of Iowans were there and they were screaming death threats. I've never had that experience in my life because this whole huge economic thing, the newspapers had to blame it on me. Like I, I have the capacity to, I live in Minnesota. I've, I, I barely knew the film commission. Like it was such a surreal experience and they're screaming. And the look on his face was, you'll have to kill me to get to her. He said, just turn your back, ignore them. And I'll, and, and I'll, 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 I'll be in between you. And he did. And he, so Thomas, um, we found an attorney who was arguably one of the best attorneys in the country who said, cause all the other producers were suing and winning. They'd all had, all had their attorneys, a criminal defense attorney. And, um, the attorney was fanta uh, fantastic. We, I mean, I went through a couple of terrible attorneys and then, you know, cause you just, don't, I don't know. I just didn't know. Not terrible. They just didn't know how to service. It was so, such malicious attacks. And then um, Matthew Whitaker came to the forefront and um, someone mentioned him. They said, they, a guy that I've never met, but we were connected on LinkedIn. And he said, he called me and he said, I see where you're going through a Christian lobbyist in Iowa that somehow I'd connected with earlier. 
and he said, you need to call the so-and-so, Matt Whitaker. Here's his number, and he won't take your call unless you tell him that I'm sending you. But you can tell him that I am sending you. I never would have gone into Matt. I get I get there. Um, he said, I'd like to meet with you and have this conversation. We have documentation, books and books of documentation. Here's what they said. Oh, then they switched to charge. Oh, we didn't really mean that. We meant this. Oh, that. And you're constantly gathering it. And Thomas is doing all this work. Meanwhile, again, uh, I get arraigned, I get shackled, I get taken off, like all kinds of crazy things. Like this is, you know, they, I have to get a bail bond, like all the stuff you never think in your life you have to do. And I know I didn't do a single thing I wasn't directed to do by the state officials. And that my attorneys, three of them, had verified this right. So my attorneys were like, we don't know why they're doing this. Well, I know why they were doing this, because they didn't want to pay me $42 million. Because half of 84. But had they just taken a moment and sat and said, we want to question you, what's your intent on the contracts? I would have said, I'll sign them off. I don't, I don't want them. I would never, ever. My parents' home state, I would never make the people of Iowa pay $42 million there's something I didn't do. I had none. I had lost any money. There was no. There's no remuneration. There's nothing. I don't. I don't. I won't do that. But they never asked. Goes all the way through the trial and the day that I'm scheduled to take the stand, and they keep switching. You can't have this evidence. You can't have this evidence. You can't have this. And you're like, wow. It's just a surreal experience. And the judge was clearly against us, and the jury was clearly against me. And the day I'm supposed to take the stand, they said, oh, we want to offer her a plea bargain. And they realized, like, the, I'm not an attorney, but the one rule in court is you never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. And because they had purposely never questioned me, for me to be allegedly taking the stand, but between you and me, I wasn't going to take the stand because I'm a terrible witness. I'll just say the truth. I'm not... You know, I'm not a good witness, but I was on the docket to do so. And they kept throwing plea bargains at us. Take this, take this, take this. And the fourth one, I kept saying, no, I'm not going to be a convicted felon. I don't want to lose my right to vote. I don't, I didn't have any intent of doing any of these things. So the fourth plea bargain, my attorney comes back in the room and he said, Wendy, I think we should listen to this one. They will stand silent for sentencing. They won't require any sentence, mandatory sentence. All you have to do is plead guilty to one thing. It could be something you didn't know, or you did know, but you, you but you didn't know, and you plead guilty that you did it by mistake, and then the judge will decide on your, on your sentence. So it was risky, but it was riskier to go in front of that jury. So I said, um, I'll accept this plea bargain. So the, the, the one thing that they said that I did of the five remaining charges that I went to trial for, one of them was that by a, a company in California, we, we knew we had the same recommendation. What I said I'm guilty of is that the company from California called me because we had a mutual friend and said, we've tried to reach this film office before everything collapsed, but we don't, we can't reach them. We just have one question. She said, what's your question? I can't answer, but maybe I'll email and maybe he'll answer me and then you'll get your answer. To which 
they replied, we just want to know if we can change the name of, of the, on, on the, on the application. And so I sent that to all of them. There's a question out there, sir, you know, commissioner, can you please get back to them and let them know? So he responded, he emailed me back, just a question on that. That's it. And he emailed me back only. And he said, anything can be modified in an application until it goes to contract from with the state insignia on it and everything. I said, and he, I forwarded it to them. And I said, there's your answer. Have a good day. That was the end of it. I had no commercial relationship with them. I didn't receive any money from them. It was just a favor to sign. For that one thing, they said, that was an intent for you to commit fraud. I forwarded an email from the guy in the office who subsequently had all these charges against, nine charges against him. And I, I said, I don't understand how that's fraud. There was no intent. But you intended to, email, to empower them to do business. I am okay. I accept responsibility. I didn't know this was, it was a criminal act. I, wouldn't, I apologize. And the judge said to me, I don't think you're sincere. What? And I said, and I, I, I said, I mean, I, I accept inherently a guilty plea of any kind is, a, 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 you know, is accepted. And, and it's, a, it's, a, I, it's sincere, not it's inherently a guilty plea. I feel you're unremorseful. You show no remorse. It's remorse. I didn't know they. I didn't know that. I didn't know that the man was going to be charged with all these crimes. I didn't know. I, I didn't have any idea. And so I come back for sentencing, and he. It's on YouTube somewhere. I've never watched it apparently, but he just ripped me apart. He said, "How dare you come into the state, and with you know you making your own rules and X Y Z?" And he said, "They the prosecutor refused to put any suggested sentence on there." So I'm going to give you the maximum. I'm going to sentence you to 10 years in a women's maximum security oh. prison, which you'll start to serve your term, whatever. And they shackle me up and take me off. And I was like, well, this is not how that was supposed to go. And so I know that, again, I believe so strongly things don't happen to us. They happen for us. A little hard to see that in that, well, I'm shackled up and I'm being you know, taken to off to jail. But the sub, all the subsequent, like everything that came after that was so, thank you, was so incredibly like out of the hand of God that it was like, okay, I, 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 I see this for what it is and it doesn't really involve me. So I, like for one example, they said, okay, you've got a strip searcher and get her in whatever. And just then my attorney had connected he had was he had gotten everything done, and he came to the city hall, came to the courthouse, and he said he made a call and he said, "I have her bail bond. Don't send her up to prison. I've got her." And he got to the right person, and that person said to the guy, "Wait, aren't you going back to the courthouse now?" And he says, "Yeah, yeah, I have to drop the van off." And they said, "Take her with you instead of like." me going through the whole thing because it's days. Once you're in the system, once you've been fingerprinted and everything like that, all that stuff, strip search and all that stuff, you're in there for days until they can get you out. It was a matter of the woman called out 
to the guy, aren't you going to city hall, to the courthouse? And he said, yes, I am. And he had the keys and he's walking on. He goes, wait. She says, wait, wait, take her because she's already made bond. And he's like, made bond already? That's great. And he comes in and he unlocks and he's okay, come with me. And I went, I was home. And that was it. Like that. So I get there and my father had, you know, my attorney had written the check for the bail bond himself because it had to be done right away. And it was this crazy scenario that you're like, it doesn't, and they're like, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And the guards are all saying, we've watched your case. We don't know why you're here. We feel so bad for you. We're so sorry. Hopefully it'll get worked out. And we go. And I go back to the case. They unlock me. Psh, I'm, I'm done. So it's like, I'm not done. So then for two years, I fought it. For two years. So right after I was sentenced, I'd appear as a defense witness both the film commissioner, the guy who told us what to do with the nine felony counts, and this tax and the gentleman who had been the CPA who had been the tax credit, um, he'd work with the tax credits, the way they, they, they give us incentive. And I had to be both of their, on their defense team. Like I knew inside and out that none of us had done something with any malice or intent. I hadn't. I had nothing with them. So they felt safe enough to call me as a witness in their defense, which is odd because I'm the one who's going to prison for 10 years. <clears throat> so I'm called in, pay for myself. I have to go to Iowa and it is terrifying to get on the stand. But I was exactly as I knew, I was truthful, exactly as I would have been had I been on the stand on my own trial. And it, and they said, you know, how long are you, how long, you've been sentenced, how long is your sentence? I said, 10 years. And the, and the guy who was prosecuting me said, why are you here then? Why are you defending him? I said, because everything I ever saw, he didn't do anything wrong. And he said, but you got 10 years and da, da, da. And we knew he was after me to begin with. I mean, we knew that. And so he said, do you feel you're a scapegoat? And I didn't say anything. Just let that hang there. Because oftentimes when a question is never ask a question in court that you don't know the answer to. And he knew I was a scapegoat because he planned it. I said nothing. I left the stand there shaken, but that former film commissioner was had nine felony counts against him. I only had five, but he had nine at the end. <clears throat> of which eight he was acquitted. His jury said he didn't do it. And the one felony count that they had, they had to bring something probably, was felonious misconduct in office for misdirecting me. So it was proven in open court. A jury said he committed a felony. He misdirected this woman and she went to prison for that. But it's interesting in that state, and I can't speak for every state, Whatever happened prior to sentencing, whatever happened after sentencing has no bearing on your sentence. So that fact that he was convicted of misdirecting me exactly as I said he was, was not, we weren't, nobody cared. And so I fought the sentence, 10 years, I fought it for two years. Fought it, it cost a tremendous amount of money, um, went to the, nobody wanted to hear it. The Supreme, Iowa Supreme Court didn't want to hear it. It's a state case, so it can't go further in federal courts. The, and so what happened? 
on February uh, 11th of 2013, I surrendered. And I was like, I'll be gone for 10 years. I said goodbye to my kids. I said goodbye to my husband because that's what I was told would happen. And I went down and they, and the very first guard who locked me up and shackled me said, Wendy, we've all followed your case. We don't know why you're here. We're so sorry. And I saw such kindness from her. Um, I, I, I was so moved by it. It was so intense. And, um, and I knew that I was going to be fine. Like I knew. They were terrified that there would be women, maybe white supremacists, or women who are uh, the Muslim population who might, because I'm a Jewish woman, they might come after me. I always had great relationships with everybody. I never had an altercation. I was the one everybody went to. So I get to the first holding cell, and then they're moving to a second. So they, and they moved me, and the same woman who, same guard who spoke to me first, volunteered to drive me alone from this one prison to the next prison, to the county jail, but nobody knew where I was. Like, it was supposed to be in the county jail for a week or two weeks, and then the, traditionally, and then they move you to a hospital facility where you get all kinds of shots, I still don't know what they are, and you get all kinds of stuff, whatever, and then you check up, and, and then you go from there to the prison system, and then you're in. in and she and it was like very fast-tracked because they were afraid. They didn't know what happened. They didn't know me. And they didn't know what would happen. So I get to the, um, I'm there, and they take me out. Uh, they're like, okay, you're free to go. I was like, what? You've been released. You're, I'm released to the other facility, but for a minute I thought I was released. Like my, my rabbi or my, my attorney and my, my, my husband, like they'd worked something out. And they're like, oh, you're not really released. You're just released from this facility, and you're going to go to this other facility. Okay, so... The woman who collected me first said, I volunteered to drive her. I'll take her. I'll take her. It's like a three-hour drive, two-and-a-half-hour drive. So I'm in the car, and I'm shackled up, and, and um, the, I'm in a cage, basically. And she's like, how are you doing? I said, I'm fine. I just haven't eaten in a few days because I won't eat non-kosher food. She's like, oh, my gosh, that's terrible. So I said, <laughs> trust me, I... I, I, I I can go for a few days, it's not a problem. And she said, and I said, but the problem is my husband and my, my, my attorney, they don't know where I am right now. Like I'm being transferred across the state, they don't know where I am. And this lovely lady takes her cell phone and hands it to me. Nobody would ever do that. She said, we know you're innocent. What's your husband's number? And I called him and I told him, honey, I'm in the back of the police car, I'm shackled up. I'm on my way to, and he's crying. He's like, what do you mean? Where are you going? And I said, I'm going to the, hosp the hospital facility, and then they'll take me to the next prison at some point in time. He said, but you want us to go there for two or three weeks. I said, no, but they're taking me now. I need you to know where I am. I need you to call my attorney. I need them to know, and I haven't eaten in a few days. So you need to, he's like, why are you not eating? I said, there's no food. He said, we made arrangements prior to there would be food. I said, there's no food, sweetie. So I said, I'm fine, but I just need to, so I get to the next facility, and the the um, this woman, this guard, has been crying in the car. It makes me so sad to drop you off, Wendy. I'm so sorry. You know, you don't deserve this. You didn't do anything wrong. I said, I'm fine. I'm, I'm telling her I'll be fine. And by using the words, that's the theme of the day, by using the words, I'll be fine, 
I was. I felt God was with me and I wasn't concerned. And I, a little part of me thought, this is a really great adventure that not many people get to take. I know that I'm innocent and I also know, I know there's a purpose. There's a big, there are big purposes. So I get there. She hands me over to the, to the counselor, a small, lovely little blonde lady who says to me, my, my pastor has instructed me that if, that if I ever encounter a Jewish person, it's my job to help them to serve them because you're the chosen people. And I said, and so everybody else maybe met with their counselor for 10 minutes in the six weeks span they were in the hospital. I was there for a week and every day she'd bring me out for two hours and we'd sit in the office, how are you doing? You know, what's going on? Have you been to Israel? She'd ask me questions. Yes, I had kids in Israel. I was just there, the, like stuff. They formed a very nice bond and she was very protective. Everywhere along the way, someone was there to say, I know you're not crazy. I know you did the right thing. We're terribly sorry. And I, I saw that as, you know, who are we on this earth if we are not God's hands? Someone needs to be, they need to have their clothes laundered and they need to, they walked across the country and they need, my parents taught us that. We are God's hands. So, and so in, because we do his work, okay, there's like a relationship. Uh, again, we always say Judaism is not a religion. It's a relationship. I want to have a relationship with the Almighty. And because I want to have a relationship with the Almighty, I have to step in where other people may not. And that takes a lot of time. That takes a ridiculous amount of courage. Other people would perceive. But I'm not doing it alone. So I went from there. So, and I was only in the hospital facility a week. It was supposed to be, and it was a, just a old, grotesque feeling. But I met some incredible people. Some, I, I finally got to speak occasionally to some of the other offenders. And there was a woman there. Her name is Michelle. I'll never forget her as long as I live. Who dealt with severe postpartum depression. Two children. She'd worked at the University of Iowa. And um, she was a biologist and she was very well educated and she knew she waited a long time to have kids. And then she had like a seven-year-old and a one-year-old and the one-year-old, she had developed such terrible postpartum depression that she was suicidal, but she was so proud. You know, she was a mem member of an upstanding church and she didn't want to tell anybody how she felt. She was so distraught. But even more distraught, and this is so painful because I know how much you love your daughter. She said, if I kill myself, I'm going to leave my children without a mother. That means I need to kill my children first. And in her mind, this was her best way of eliminating her pain. So she drove her kids, said, I'm going to take the kids for ice cream, the seven-year-old and the, the baby. And she took them out to the country and she slit their throats. The seven-year-old um, survived, the baby died, and then she slit her own throat. And she showed me the scar. It was horrifying. And she said, I wear this scar every day because I was too proud to go get help. She said, I would stand, every morning I would leave my car in the parking garage and I would stand on the corner and let the light change and change and change. She said, if I walked to the left, it was going to my office. And if I walked to the right, 
I could walk into the hospital and say, I'm profoundly depressed. I need help. And they would help me. And every morning I made the wrong decision. I went to work and I pretended everything was okay. And this analogy that I said to her, um, it still sticks in my head so much. I said, there's only so long that you can push a beach ball underwater before it pops up. And she said, sadly, we lost our one-year-old. And my seven-year-old has a zipper. She said, I'm still married to my husband. He knew that it was not something I did willingly. It was something that the depression drove me to. And I'm in, I've been incarcerated for life with no chance of parole plus 25 years for the heinous crime. And she said, I'll never see him again. I'll never, she wore a wedding ring still. Said, I'll never see him again. I'll never see our child again, who's probably 10 or 11 at the time. She said, and all I want to do is help these other women. And I said, you could do that so well by allowing your story to be told. And you can do that by um, becoming a minister in the prison and helping these women, you know, react and appropriately and understand that there's no stigma if we need help asking for help. You know, we need help in math, we ask for help, we all kinds of things. But again, so often women are told that their voice doesn't matter. Their feelings don't matter. Just push down the beach ball. But, you know, a great example, it's very, how, how heavy is this coffee cup? How heavy? Not very heavy, right? It's full, half full. It's not very heavy. If I hold it for a minute. If I hold it for an hour, man, it's very hard to hold it. It gets and feels very heavy. What if I hold it for a year? It's so heavy I can't think about it. The, I, the things that we need to say to each other, I need help, or um, I see what you're doing could be hurting you, and I want to know why, and I want, I'm here to help you. Um, those things that we can say have to be said. Roxana, we, we're given a voice. And, and cognitive thought for a reason. And she stood in that corner and never lights going by. Hey, Jim. Hey, you know, they're, oh, hi, hi, Michelle. And they're walking by and no one ever stopped her and said, are you having trouble crossing the street? Is there something going on? She And she didn't have the courage to just turn to a stranger who would not judge her and say, I need help. Can you walk me to the hospital? And for that, she's separated from her family for years. But she can use, hopefully use that pain to drive her to help these women use their words to explain what they need. So she, the guards liked to taunt her. I mean, it was a terrible thing. They all came, depression was reborn from assaults she had when she was a child and terrible. And um, the man who assaulted her wore keys on his belt. He was a janitor or something. And he wore keys on his belt the same way the that the officers wear keys, a ring of keys on their belt, and she would hear them walk walk nearby, and the sound would put her into like a panic attack. Just the sound of someone walking by. And they would taunt her. They would jingle their keys. And I watched her have a nervous breakdown, and I said goodbye to her. And they, she just broke down, and they picked her before her handcuffed her and took her away to take her to the hospital to medicate her or to whatever, and that was it. I never saw her again, but I never forgot her story. So, and so I had the ability to go through, get transferred to the other prison. And my mother, again, God bless my mother, may she live in good health for a long time, always said to me when I was a child, growing up, 
You're never uncomfortable anywhere. That's so interesting. It's so admirable. You're never uncomfortable anywhere. And I thought that was, I, I didn't, I didn't know people who are anxious. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know. It didn't dawn on me that that was other people's reactions. I remember getting off the van and we're all shackled up. All these women who came at the same time I came in and, um, getting off the van and they see the gates close behind you in the main prison and you hear the chink still that sound makes you a little itchy itchy but you know when a gate closes it's like oof but you hear the electric gates lock and they take off your shackles and like okay you're going to be there you're going to be there this is your unit you're going to be staying there a lot of women are coming back for a second or third or 20th time like a lot of people but i was a newbie and they take off the shackles and you're in you're in prison. You're in a women's maximum security prison. And we're thinking, this is a great place to test mom's theory. I'm not uncomfortable anywhere. So I'm going to make my mom proud, and I'm not going to be uncomfortable. So the very first woman who I walk in, and they, you know, you've got some things you're carrying with you, and they you walk in to my unit, which was a special needs unit, because they kind of didn't know what to do with me. And they, they kind of thought I was a holy terror, but whatever. I mean, they, the, the rumors are great, way better than the real story. And this woman, this African-American woman at the door has a big smile, and she said, have a blessed day. And I was like, there are religious people here. There are God-fearing people here. This is going to be so interesting. I later find out that she had been, um, she'd been living on the streets for a long time, and um, mental illness and all kinds of challenges and uh, drug abuse, and she uh, sacrificed her grandson to the devil. And that's what put her in prison for life. And this woman said to me, have a blessed day. And I was like, wow, you just don't know their stories? And then I was so blessed to be embraced by guards who were like, you're not at all what they said you were. They said you were going to be like a holy terror, and you're going to be, you're not like that at all. And I said, really, where did you get these stories? That's so crazy. It's all over your files. They circulated all this paperwork before you came about, be careful, don't look her in the eye. What? Yeah, it was crazy. And it was fun because I was like, well, there goes that. And they're like, this is just incredible. And so um, I spent six months and four days. And in that time, um, I was the gal that everyone went to for help. I wrote commutations. A, co- a commutation, which was granted by President Obama. And so a woman who I was very close with um, was life with no chance of parole for a crime that she did not commit. There is something that you learn very quickly in prison, I learned, and they is that people who are innocent walk differently. We don't have the sh- carry the shame I did something really bad and I'm in here. We're like, I got stuck in a, and I walk differently. And I, you could see, I can see the women who were that way, who walked differently, lifers. Women with no chance of parole, why? Because they were young. They didn't understand the legal system. They didn't have good attorneys. I had a great attorney and I'm in prison. So it's like all these things, you know, and, and factors that were just against them in certain ways of all colors, nationalities. Like there wasn't a, there were just, and the innocent women, we walked differently and we kind of came together. Not that we wouldn't, there was a lovely woman 
had the softest eyes I've ever seen. And she was in prison for 14 years. Because why? Because she was so brutally abused by her husband that there were times when she, her face was unrecognizable. God forbid. But un, broke her cheekbones, her jaw, like you couldn't see her. And she was so tired of his drunken outbursts that one night she, she shot him and killed him in their bed. When he was drunk, she shot him and killed him. And then she left the room, old farmhouse out in the country, closed the door, locked it, and never went back in. And after 14 months, he disappeared. He ran off. It wasn't the first time he ran off. She just went about her normal life without the worry of being abused. 14 months later, um, there was some reason somebody came to the house or whatever, and they suspected, and they went in, and they found his body, or his remains, in the bed, and um, she was arrested for that. And um, she had protection orders. She'd gone to the police. They, oh, no, he's a good old boy, whatever the scenario was. And um, she served a year for every month that she had let him languish in the bed. And um, she had the softest eyes you've ever seen. Like, this is not a woman. She wouldn't hurt a fly. But she was at the, her, because she didn't tell the right people. Nobody believed her. Oh, she's so clumsy. She fell into a, nobody breaks their jaw and their cheekbones and their nose because they fell into a, uh, you know, or, oh, she got in a car accident. Like, it's just, but it was rural and nobody kind of looked and it was just, what have you. And then she was released. And she was released, and she went on. She's gone on to live a happy life. Um, after the fourteen years were up, and um, the in reintroduction to society component, by the way, all they would do in the prison is they would take you in your prison garb. In this, and it was just basically it was just a uh, um, scrubs. They would take you to the local Walmart the day before, two days before you're released, and they would say, "Well, this is what society looks like," and they'd walk you through Walmart. 10 years, 14 years, that's that's all they get. That was, there was no, here's a phone, here's how you'll use it, here's a computer, here's whatever. No. Nope. Wow. It was just that. And so a lot of women fail in society. They, they're they in prison for a long time, and they, they get out and they think, oh, the world's so different, I can't live here, but I can live there. So they commit a crime to violate their parole, and they go back. And they, they're happy there because they're safe, they have food, they have camaraderie, whatever. They don't have to take care of their kids, or whatever it is. I mean, I met all kinds. And there was a grandmother, daughter, and granddaughter. Who was like, the granddaughter was 18, 20 years old. Maybe she had three or four kids. The mother was probably in her 30s, and then the grandmother was probably 50s. And they all committed some crime to violate their parole so they could go back in because they were tired of taking care of their kids. That was their... That was their excuse. We just want to hang out for a few months together and uh, not have to deal with the kids. Wow. So, so services did it, whatever. It was not a So it's like a lot of stories. And what a lot of stories. And at some point, I only had only allowed one visitor. I had two on my visitor wall. I didn't allow my husband and the kids to come. Because if they had to turn around and leave and leave me there in that scenario, they would have been crushed. So better they don't see me for the length of time. But I, I believed... If I did as much good as I could there, and I tried, I tried so hard, and my rabbi would come in and visit, and he was allowed to come in, he was certified as a visitor, and he would come in and give me news from home and report back, but he 
but um, another rabbis would come and visit. It was very kind. They're very kind. And um, I believe that if I did as much as I could, when I could do more good outside than inside, then God was going to, then my sentence was over. And I filed paperwork and um, with the court, and my attorney came one time to visit. He's a very big man, very important. You're like, oh my gosh, it's their attorney. And a um, good friend of mine and a good, a very good man, a good Christian and a good, like a very, very, very fine gentleman. And he said, I don't think you should file your own paperwork because your judge hates you. And because no. your judge hates you, it's up to him to decide if you can, you know, come back to court and be seen or not. I don't think it's a good idea. I think you should at least wait a year and then, then we'll consider it. All right. So thank you very much. And I didn't take his advice. I said, God has other plans for me. So I filed on my own, like 75 cents I had paid for a copy from the library. And I filled out the paperwork, which is no more than a couple of pages. And I sent it to the judge with a bunch of letters from community leaders in my community, doctors and lawyers and, and teachers and nurses and rabbis. And it was a thick stack saying, I will, I will watch over her. I'll make sure that she never reoffends. I didn't offend in the first place. Well, I offended, I just didn't offend. So, and so sure enough, I sent that to the judge and I waited and I sent it right around this time of the year. I'd only been in prison for about two months. I was like, no, because a lifer, a woman named Christy, Christy Lockhart, a beautiful woman, life with no chance of parole. She said, you need to file the paperwork yourself. They don't want to see a big fancy attorney. They just want to see you. And I believed her. I said, how do you know this? She said, I've been here for 30 years. I know how it goes. I'm here. Life with no chance of parole. And she and I became good friends. And she had a case in front of the Iowa Supreme Court that she had been sentenced to murder in the first murder in the first degree, which she did not commit, did not have anything to do with, when she was still a minor, and that was illegal. You can't sentence a minor as an adult. But they did anyway, because and um, her, she was so obviously not guilty. And I knew this early on because she brought me her paperwork. And she said, once every 10 years, I'm allowed to speak to the parole board and ask them to recommend that the governor commute my sentence because the governor has that power. And so this is 30 years. So when I went in, so it was the time for that, for her to have that meeting. And she was terribly nervous. There were three other women who had that opportunity at that time. And the full board came out to prison. And so we had five days to prepare her. I'm not an attorney, Roxana. I'm just, I'm a storyteller. And I said, I think it's important that the point of this you need to make. And I really prayed all the time. I didn't sleep at all. I prayed all along. Please don't let me, this is her one chance. Please don't let me tell her the wrong thing. Like, let me, don't, don't put the, put the words in my mouth. I'm just a vessel. Put the words in my mouth. And what came to me so strongly was, she was a child. She got in the car with a man she didn't know because he said he offered her a ride. Turns out he was a police informant and he had just killed someone. But she got in the car with a man and the police informant just murdered somebody in cold blood. And so, and so she had to get across to the parole board that in fact she um, was a child and she made a mistake by getting in the wrong car. She didn't know. I was a child and I made a mistake by getting into the car. That was my mistake. And she kept saying that. I said, repeat it over and over again. Finally, the head of the parole board said, okay, enough. Stop saying that you were a child. We know that. And the editorial writer for the newspaper was there. 
I was not allowed to observe, but she was there. This person was there. I'm like, wait a minute, she was a child. How many stupid things did I do as a kid? And then she wrote an article, and then it caught speed. And the day that I was released, I was called in front of the chief judge, and he said, I don't know why you're incarcerated at all. Had I been, had I been presiding, it would have been a completely different story. You're going home today. And that same day, the Iowa Supreme Court overturned her sentence to life with a chance of parole. And within two years, she was free. She called me. Wow. So so she was free. And we were so, oh my gosh, the the joy was like surreal. Like I still feel it. So I was there for a purpose. And when my purpose had completed, then I was, you know, free to do things on the outside. So I was released. And then, and it was, and it was, I went home. My husband was there in the courtroom. I went home with him and um, I got to call my parents and my, my kids from the car. Mom's on her way home, and um, and I I walked into my house, and my kids were just like two littles were like going into their summer, and they were just going into um, sixth and eighth grade, and then I was home. So I I see God's hand, like I see what how I was dri- directed and driven. I never had an altercation. I saw incredibly ugly violence in the prison, not to me. I witnessed it, I saw it, but I, but it, it and, the, and how do you, how does, how does fear, you know, fear is an acronym, they say, you know, face everything and whatever, or, or you know, forget everything and run, whatever, whatever, like, they're acronyms, we can decide if this thing is for us or to us. And when it's for us, it's never bad. It may not be pleasant. School isn't pleasant, but it's for us. And we go to school and we get out of what we need and we go on. So, um, and I did it. I spoke all over the world for a while after that. And my kids are like, wow, we really want you home. And I realized like those are the ones I need to mentor and be with. I missed a lot. Six months is a lot. I missed some big life things. It aged my parents tremendously. Like it really hurt them. On the other side of it, again, we have to embrace the vulnerability that comes with You've just been through this. What do you do? And as I said, my business mentor was a phenomenal man. And Mark said, I don't care how long you're in there. When you get out, call me, come to me, and I will help you rebuild. And he did. And you're like, why didn't you go to a therapist? I had a lot of help. And it was hard. My husband had to manage the kids and the, and the working and like everything. It was hard. So hard on him. And he just... Did it. He just put his head down. I love you. We're proud of you for handling this so well and just keep going. And so, you know, I see the blessings and I and I see that being afraid in prison would have been a death sentence. Wow. Not being afraid in the most extreme pressure cooker situation left me open to see the blessings. They say that bitterness fear, anger, all those things. And gratitude cannot exist in the same Petri dish. They can't exist at the same time. If you put gratitude in there, in that, in the bitter, sour cocktail you're drinking, it, it nullifies it. We can't. So the natural outcome, when I met my partner, who was my Lyft driver in Los Angeles seven years ago, 
when I was out and I knew that I wanted to do this again, I wanted to be in this industry. The industry didn't do it to me. Iowa did it to me. I just won't go back to Iowa. So at the blessing, I um, was walking out of a meeting and I called a lift and I get in and it happens to be this young man whom I only saw the face on the app and I'm a grandmother. I don't care what it looks like. But he had a fantastic voice, calm and soothing and focused. And um, the interesting thing is he wasn't the first lift I called. I had been, wow. um, I was in this meeting and I walked out and then this, this producer came to me and said, Wendy, I, I just got offered a project. He said, if you want to do it with me, we could do it together. I'll let them know. He said, it's about a circus and it's a musical. And they say that Hugh Jackman is attached. Do you want to work on that with me? And I said, I love Hugh Jackman, but I said, I, I like him, but I said, I think circuses are a little bit creepy. So I, don't, I think I'm going to say no. And he said, you know, my daughter's a vegan. I think she thinks circuses are the animals and, you know, kind of history piece, whatever. So we both turned down the greatest showman and it was the best decision I ever made. And I got in this lift. So he wasn't, so I canceled the lift and then I called another one. And he had decided, this lift driver had decided that when he would drive, he'd only drive forward. He'd never like double back to go get a fare because he focus goes where energy flows. And he, and he had a very specific directive by driving lift. But there was something about a single woman standing there in, uh, in the streets of LA at 10.30 at night. It just, he followed that sense and he flipped a, you know, flipped a U, turned, and he came back and picked me up in the car, I'm by myself, and I had like a long ride, like 51 minutes. I remember it's 51 minutes. I even like took a snapshot of the record of the, of the lift receipt, and um, I tipped him well, pretty well, thank God. And so we are talking, and I was so impressed. He said, I moved from the central coast of California. I moved to uh, LA because I'm writing a script with my cousin, and I, a story that came to me that I, you know, and I spent a lot of time in LA in my life, but I really, I'm living here now and I'm very dedicated like this done. I said, who's it for? Like I started just shooting questions at him like a producer would shoot. Who's it for? Do you have a dialogue coach? Who's helping you like logistics and where do you want to shoot this? Like all kinds of things. And he had really good answers. He had really good answers, but it was the way he answered them. I listened more to the texture of his voice. It was very strong and confident and vulnerable at the same time and very soothing. And I said, um, I said, here's my, here's my card or my information here. I'm more than happy to uh, find you a mentor here in LA. I'm geographically undesirable because I'm going back to Minnesota, but I'm happy to find someone. I'm here occasionally, but I know people here who are lovely and then have a cup of coffee with you and they kind of help you guide you on the process. I'll take that offer. I'll take that opportunity. So I'm just going to put my phone for something here because it's a point. And so I said, okay, great. So sure enough, we, um, I, I, this will be important in a second. So sure enough, we get to that space where it's like, um, he's, uh, he texts me, I'm home. And he texts me two days later and he emails me. And there's just one line in the email. Hi, it's Noah, your Lyft driver with a smiley face. And I said, um, I said, I'm so glad I kind of barraged you with questions. I'm so glad you reached out. I give my information to a lot of millennials. They don't really follow up. 
I'm really excited to help you, you know, and I'll, we'll help you find somebody who's like, I'd rather work with you until we find the right person. Great. Two months. I'm mentoring him. Hey, have you read this article? Here's a video. This is really cool. What do you think of this film? Da, da, da. So I'm talking about film, and I like his answers, and I like this guy, and he sends me the first 15 pages. And that's key. I like to read the first 15 of a script to see where it's going, see if I can relate. If I don't feel something for the lead characters, I don't want to go on that ride. And it was interesting. Like, it was really interesting. And I said, like, the first 12 different but the of the, the the film of my first short film and i i said i gave it to two guys on my team who don't like anything and they're very protective of me you met this guy in a lift what's the deal like they were very and they both read it and they came back to me okay this is really good this is really interesting i'm really this is i didn't expect this so i called noah and i said i never seen him i mean i saw the back of his head and I said, I think we should go into business and produce your film. Wow. In the interim, my youngest daughter said to me, Mom, you're spending a lot of time with Noah, mentoring him. You don't know anything about him. Why don't you Google him and see if he's a serial killer? I was like, that's a good idea. So I Googled him, and what I found was a stunning modeling portfolio. Roxana, stunning. A lot of friends in the industry. I have friends who are agents, who are acting and modeling. Stunning, really accomplished. GQ magazine, Vogue, Versace, Armani, Calvin Klein billboards, like the whole deal. And I texted him and said, can we have FaceTime? I'd never seen his face. And he said, oh, that'd be great, 10 o'clock. And up pops that million dollar face. I'll show you the million dollar face. This is, this is him with my parents. Oh, wow. Okay. I see what you mean there. <laughs> and my parents love him. They love him. So um, I said, is this you? And I showed him and he said, didn't I mention? I was discovered when I was 14. My sister wanted to be a model. Went to a photographer. The photographer said, let me take a picture of you. He's like, sure. I was, whatever's going to get us, you know, uh, whatever. And then he gets a call. There's an agent who wants to represent you. And Adidas International wants to sign you. And he started, he was an athlete, he's an athlete. And so he went all the way. And so, but he said, I don't want to be in front of the camera. I want to be behind the camera. I want to create. I don't want to be just a pawn. I've done TV, I've done film. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be in front of the camera. And I said, so I had to ask a question. Why are you driving Lyft? Like you, I know what kind of money you made. Um, and it was good money, but why Lyft? And, he, and why, why are you driving Uber and Lyft? Like, why are you doing that? I've only ever used Lyft. And he said, he gave me the single greatest answer ever. He said, I was looking for you. Wow. I'm way too shy to get my work out there. Wow. I can create, but I don't know how to get it out there, get it done. So I can write it down and then what? So I figured if I used my car to help people in LA go where they need to go, at some point the right producer was going to get in my car and I'd know. And I said, when did you quit driving Lyft? And he said, shortly after I met you, I knew. I went home and told my roommate, I'm done. I'm done. Cause I, I know that I'm the smart producer and we're going to work together. And I got out of the car thinking this one deserves help. If I can help him, I want to. So I am going to do everything I can do to, to get him what he needs. This one deserves it. All he has to do is 
contact me and I will go to the ends just because. And we've been really since that night and they've probably been partners, but then officially, and so seven years. And it's, and he's more creative than anybody I've ever met, more beautiful on the outs, inside than he is on the outside, and more committed. Um, we, so we, we, were, we were approached while we were working on My Golden Blood, like in the beginning stages, we were approached to produce a short film, Rachel, about a man's story as the only surviving witness's story about him witnessing his Ukrainian Catholic parents rescuing Jews from during World War II. Oh. And it was intense. And I first said, I don't, I don't, it's too emotional for me. I don't think you can do it. And, um, but he said, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to tell a story. I don't trust anybody to tell a story. And so I said to Noah, look, we could do this project while we're doing the other. And um, we could get some great experience. And Noah had been on film sets, but not behind the camera. He said, okay, we could do it. And then we interviewed. We're going to have to shoot in Minnesota because they're just nowhere else. We just didn't have the money. We, he gave us a budget. And, and so um, I said to Noah at some point in time, we were scouting locations for a farm that we needed. And he did this thing. He said, she walks up this way on the way the camera does it. And I said to him, and I didn't say anything actually, but I, in my head, I said, that's what a director does. That's not what a writer or a producer does. I would never do that. Oh, that's what a camera angle. I don't know anything about camera angles. But instinctively he did. He studied it so intensely because he wanted to do it for so long. So I said to him, I think we interviewed directors and I don't like any of them. And it's my job as director producer to, to shoot, hire a director. And I think you should direct this film. You're 23. You have a lot of talent. You could do this. And he said, nothing. And then a day later he came back and he said, I could direct Rachel. I said, I know you can, but will you? You know it so well. And he said, yes, I will. And we won at World Trust Houston, International Film Festival, the first festival we ever entered. We won. And um, and they were like, you should have entered in as a director, like a first-time director, which is huge because Ridley Scott won that at 28 years old, his first film, and Steven Spielberg won it at 26 for his first film. And that was 20, 23 when we shot that film. We shot that film. So, and then we, and then all that knowledge and like, okay, now I know what it's like has been plowed into My Golden Blood, which is great. And um, My Golden Blood is a wonderful story that he, the one he, the first 15 pages that he brought to me, but it's the story to go to television, multi, like uh, think Stranger Things with a purpose. Wow. And a young man who has a very, very rare blood type and Clay runs away from an abusive family and physically, emotionally, um, alcoholic family, and he runs away to a mentor who says, only I see your capacity for greatness, and only I can help you achieve it, but you have to do everything I tell you to do. And the mentor turns out to be a really bad guy who wants to use Clay and other broken teenagers that he rebuilds into weapons for to destroy. He just wants to destroy so he can rebuild the way he wants things to be. But there's a young woman who gets in the way. And she says to Clay, her name is Kate. She says, you're not who you think you are. He said, you know nothing about me. She says, I know everything about you. And you're not who you think you are. I like to think at that point in time, he was 99% unredeemable. And she also has golden blood. So of the, there's two people in the story that have golden blood. And the general, 
the bad guy. We only refer to him as a general because that's how he wants to be known. Does not have golden blood, but he needs it to survive and to execute his plan. And he and the girl hate each other because she has golden blood and she won't give it to him. And she's his father. No, she's his daughter. Wow. He's the father. So you have this interesting dynamic and it's an amazing story of people um, who make choices and they make the wrong choices because they don't know what good is. Kids who leave home run away and they get sucked into a gang or a cult or living on the streets, whatever, because they think that that's what good feels like, freedom, etc. But if you don't know what good is, you don't know what to go to. So running away from something is never the ideal. It's to run to something. And they run to something that's equally, if not worse, equally bad, if not worse. So this story has all kinds of moving parts and it's really cool. What Noah, what we've created is so rich and intense and the purpose is interesting. So golden blood is a very rare type. They say that there's a hundred people in the world who have it. I think they're wrong. I think there are more. Because I was donating blood. I'm a regular blood donor. And the woman, the phlebotomist who's taking the blood, my blood, said last year said to me, I met a woman who has golden blood. I said, here in Minnesota? She said, yes. She has it. Her daughter has it. And her mother has it. So if there are three in Minnesota, statistically, 100 in the world, I, and the golden blood, is it's red. It looks like everybody else's blood, except it's not positive or negative. My blood type is A positive which is the only A-plus I ever got because in order to get married, one of us had to have a degree, so I sped through college three years. So I'm okay with C's, C's get degrees, and that's good. So with A-positive, that's great. So a woman with A-blood, A-type blood, golden blood, could donate to me if I needed it, but only her kind can give, can get it, can get from give to her. So they have to know where the other ones are. There's a database somewhere. Someone's collecting it where they are. But here's the thing. If there are three in Minnesota and wherever else in the world, God bless. The most efficient way to learn your blood type is not through your doctor. Your doctor probably doesn't have any idea. Unless they've had to type your blood, they don't know what it is. The most efficient way is to become a blood donor. Now, as I said before, where there's a need, there's a seed. So immediately... I went to the idea that in the United States, possibly in the world, but I know for sure the United States, there's an urgent need for blood donors. Of the population, only 4% of the population of the United States are blood donors. Only four. Now, arguably only 39% can, who are too old or too young or the health issues, whatever, but only 39% can. But that means there's a million people, 100 million people who don't. Now, the smallest population of people who donate is our demographic. So we have the opportunity, the young, and the, anyone from 16 to, to 35, that's the smallest group. We're the, usually the healthiest and there's a bigger number. We have the opportunity just for the idea and the ancillary benefit of learning your blood type to empower our audience to become volunteer blood donors. In this country right now, there are major cities I, I see it all the time I, I'm on all kinds of newsletters that cannot provide enough blood for people who have required surgery 
because they don't have enough blood available immediately. Wow. Like the blood has to be processed and, and purified, whatever, like those things. And, and they don't have enough to have surgery. So like, well, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. That's crazy. There's so many who are running around that could, that are healthy, that could. So you not only do you find out your blood type, but for the young audience, I try and give like high schools and wherever there is, because I want to understand this population. Now they're a little squeamish at first, it's a little scary. It doesn't hurt, it's not scary. But they walk in and teenagers and young people feel they have nothing to give Roxana. It's, it's an epidemic. I'm not an Instagram model, I'm not a rapper, I'm not a football player, I'm not, I'm not an athlete, I'm not, like I have nothing. I, I'm, I'm just a regular person. What have I got to offer? Which is a debilitating insecurity. Conversely, they walk in feeling like that. And in an hour, it doesn't take an hour, it takes but a few minutes, but an hour with all the processing and blood test, you know, finger prick and whatever, and, and the recovery time, an hour, they walk out superheroes because in that time, they've just saved three people's lives. Three people benefit from one pint of blood. That someone's having chemotherapy, someone who has sickle cell anemia, someone who has is a mother who needs the, like this, oh, hemorrhages during birth, like all kinds, three people. They walk in feeling like they have nothing to give, and what we already have in us is available to give, and three people are waiting desperately for that donation. It changes them. And the coolest thing, in my opinion, is now they'll text me and say, your blood was used for a, a eight-year-old girl who's going through chemotherapy. Now, I don't know, uh, that was one, I was in New York. I don't, you never know who these people are. Can you imagine that my blood, my, my, my plasma, whatever, my red blood cells supported the life of someone that I'll never meet? And I get to walk down the streets thinking it could be you, it could be you, it could be you. How great, we are all, all connected. Pull back our skin, sweetheart, we're all the same. You can go into a laboratory and they can make an artificial heart but they cannot make artificial blood. We're making it all the time. So we have the opportunity to do several things. Not only can we end this urgent crisis, we can empower our young audience to become lifelong blood donors, hopefully, by giving them super cool swag, t-shirts and tickets and come to the set and we can do all these kind of things. All they do is show us their boo-boo, show us that they just gave blood, they're entered into it. The whole, my Golden Blood series is not only TV, but it's uh, gaming and it's book series and everything incorporated onto one. So we have the opportunity to take these people who feel like when they walk in, they have nothing to give. And they walk out the other door and they just save lives. Who doesn't want to go, who doesn't go from zero to hero in just that quickly? So the story is excellent. What Noah has given us is a beautiful, magnificent story of empowering and interesting, and the characters are diverse and crazy, some of them crazy, for their own reasons. And on the other side, our audience gets to partake in this incredible gift that we have and go save lives. And so I love the idea that we can do both we can entertain, we can inspire, and we can save lives with one project. Again, it's going to be magnificent, like Stranger Things, like all those, the other limited series. The book series, there's three books. 
and so that we've written. So, it, you know, to be able to facilitate that. And on the other side of it, the stories of people who, it changed me. It, as the general sees Clay's capacity for greatness, inside of us, we have a capacity for greatness. We're not asking anybody to donate a kidney or half their liver or an ot, like there's not. It's simply donate blood. And the coolest thing is, not the coolest thing, but I love this part. After you donate blood, they give you a cookie. <laughs> I love cookies. <laughs> so it's like, what? You have a sweet treat and get your blood sugar back up. You know, you hydrate and then you leave. So you really feel good. It's like I did a huge good deed and I got a cookie or whatever. I think it's great. So maybe that's Jewish mom and me. So we're integrating this. So we have partners. We have amazing partners in some of the major organizations, blood donor organizations, and um, a marketing team that's incredible. And all of them align with this mission. We can change things by simply telling a story. And everyone inside of them has that capacity for greatness. It's up to someone to tell you a story that makes you say, you know what? I never thought of myself as a hero but tomorrow I can become. And that's, that's my day job, girl. That's what I do. Wow, Wendy. Let me tell you that you have forever and ever changed my life and my perception about what's inside of us. I love it how we are all heroes. And, and we're all the same. Our blood types are all the same. The golden people, we love them. But they're all the same. It doesn't matter what my culture is. We're all, it doesn't matter. I, it doesn't matter who gives me their blood. It doesn't, if I need it and it matches, we, we're much more of a match than we are different. What a great message to send today because we don't have to look at the differences anymore. Take off this, take, if we want to peel away the skin, we're human beings. I, you know, we have to recognize how much we can do, how much we can do. And I love that you allowed me to tell this really long story, all these stories, because we see eye to eye on this. Our children are the most important thing in the world. And, and teaching them to go out and do My youngest daughter and I kind of have a competition. I'll sneak in on the same schedule, basically. And I'll sneak in somewhere if I'm in Seattle or Chicago or New York, whatever. I'll sneak in and I'll go give blood. So last time she scooped me. Uh, she just she called. She just sent me a photograph and she's holding her bag of blood. <laughs> and she's like, "Ooh!" And I was like, "Oh man, I'm due. I forgot." And so I was in Seattle, so I ran and did it. And I'm like, "Can I pull my bag of blood?" They're like, "That's creepy." I'm like, "No, you understand? Look, my daughter did stay in New York, and so, so they're okay." So she's like, oh, mom, you got, oh, man, you got ahead of me or whatever. And she did a huge, she ran blood drives because you can. My old, like all of them, we have the opportunity to just pull back and be human beings and do something for someone. We never know where they are. And that is the greatest gift you can give is to help someone who can't thank you ever. Can't say to you, oh, thank you for giving that to me. It's beautiful when someone needs a kidney and you can give it to them. I get it. That's awesome. On the other side of this, I'm going to send my blood out to the world and hopefully it carries all the positivity 
and the beautiful experiences I've had and any gifts that I might have. And maybe they crave cookies, which would be kind of cool too. But the whole idea is if I can do that, I've changed the world and I can fulfill my capacity for great. Wow. This has been beyond transformational and inspiring and so beautiful, Wendy. God bless you for offering your wisdom and your amazing energy and all of these beautiful gifts from your heart to us, to the world. And before we go, I know that everyone, literally everyone watching us on YouTube and listening to us on Spotify will want to know where to get in touch with you, with My Golden Blood, with your amazing work, maybe with Noah as well. Where can we oh, find you, my dear? So, he's so great. He's so shy. He's so he's not shy. He just keeps himself. He's just, I am so blessed to, um, the whole thing is a blessing and that he is continues to be so supportive and creative and I, I'm, you know, and my kids love him. My husband loves loves him. They're like, my kids are like, they love, where's Noah? My grandkids, where's Noah? They'll call me. Where's Noah? I want to talk to you. I have a question about a car. Hello, you're calling me. Call him. So it's great. My parents are like, oh, I, we love him. So he got a second family that he didn't know he needed. And um, they've gone to football games together and they've all kinds of cool stuff. And um, And I have a partner for life. And I hope to empower him. He's got many more stories brewing in his head. So I hope to empower him to continue, you know, for the rest of my life and to continue for the rest of his life. He should continue on. And um, I I am, despite what it might seem like looking at my resume, I am the most blessed woman alive. And I am grateful every minute of every day because I made a choice to not be afraid and making that choice open every door I've ever had. And I'm so grateful that my parents put that in me that, that um, you know, you're not uncomfortable anywhere. So just go everywhere. Wow. So, and thank you for reaching out to me from across the ocean and saying, this is, I think this, you might have a story. Let's have a conversation. And our first conversation was so beautiful. And I'm so impacted by your words and empowered by your words. And I thank you for becoming my friend because you're now my friend and you're on the team and we'll definitely be in touch. And if there's, again, anything you can do, uh, mygoldenblood.com is the website and it's where we're doing a, a fundraising project to produce the pilot um, because that's where our producers and our sales agents will take, they'll say, look at this and they'll take it to, and we'll decide where it's gonna be distributed and um, we've got the books and we have just all kinds of cool stuff. Um, and the opportunity has to unfurl these two stories back to back together has been so liberating. And, um, you know, I, I don't carry any shame, but sometimes I wonder like, really, who wants to hear that again? But I thank you so much for giving me a stage and allowing me to be a part of your world, Roxana, my dear, thank you. Thank you, Wendy. What a great honor. And this has been beyond transformational at so many levels, Wendy. I cannot tell you how healed and nurtured 
I feel in this very moment. It's exactly what I needed to hear during these um, days in my life. And yet nothing happens by chance. And I'm just so, so happy to have you in my life. It's amazing. Thank you this so much. This is not much. the end, honey. This is not the end. This is just the beginning. <laughs> exactly. Again, people, if they have questions about filmmaking, I mentor a lot of people. I give a lot of advice. You know, I have a thing. I, I'm legally, I can't read their work now because I'm too much involved in my own. And there's always that question of, um, is there going to be copyright issues? Like, I can't, I can't read it. Um, that said, you know, what's next? What's the next step? How can I, that from performers to, um, how can I get an, uh, you know, audition? How can I do that? Um, I'm happy to give, you know, shoot me an email, wendy at mygoldenblood.com. Wendy at mygoldenblood.com. And I'm happy to, you know, have those interactions, offer what I can, or send them to something that will provide them with that information. Um, being arrested in Iowa for forwarding an email did not stop me from wanting wow. to be of assistance. So I choose to. It's my big, you know, at Iowa. I'm going to keep doing it. Um, and um, so I'm happy to help. There are a lot of creative people out there who are creating in their closet and they think that it's maybe it's not good enough to show. It's always good enough to show someone. And if they can constructively help them, that's a great thing. There's no shame in creating something that doesn't hurt anybody. Don't, no shame in creating it and saying, I'm curious, you know, how do you see this? And if I don't have an answer, I'll say, I don't have an answer. It's not my genre. I don't know. But keep going. You've got something there. We all need to know that we're, what we create has value. This podcast, yeah. this new podcast, has value. And I thank you for being fearless enough to not know the answers to the questions you're going to get. But yet you ask the questions and then you hold space, which is, again, my favorite. Your listening skills are incredible. And you hold space to allow people like me to just lay it all out there. And, uh, and that's a tremendous gift that you have. And I thank you for being courageous in doing that. Wow, Wendy. Thank you again for being so wonderful and just transforming this world. Because as we talked about before, beginning our actual episode, even if one person, just one person sees a post, a story. I am checking your amazing stories on Instagram. I just got yesterday something that, wow, it even, I don't exactly even remember what it was, but it got me to think of something that I was holding on to from a new perspective. You know, we never know. People don't always come to us and tell us, you've done this and that and this for me, but just right. know that you are making an absolute amazing impact in this world. We carry these things for a long time and they get heavy and we don't realize why we're tired. But we carry them because we just don't know it's okay to put them down. It's okay exactly. to show them. It's okay. We can carry it for long enough. It's un, it, it just collects everything else in it. We can put it down. So we, and we only can put it down by letting it out. That's the vulnerability part that my, that my mentor wanted me to learn. Tell the story. Tell the story. I have Bell's palsy and half my face is paralyzed. I, and I decided right away I was going to get up in front of it and I was going to say, look, this is what happened. I'm going to work, try and work my way back. 
I'm two years. I probably won't get much more, but at least I can close my eye. I can do things. Wow. Like, oh Initially, it was horrible. I mean, I have a photograph. It's just surreal how bad. It looked like a horror movie. It did. But thank God I can, I got a, a lot of enough usage back that I can still keep. You are beautiful. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. It was so bad that the neurologist said to me, I think you don't have Bell's palsy. I think you have a brain tumor. I said, I don't have it. Oh my God. He goes, you're right. You just have the worst case I've ever seen and you're not going to get better. I was like, okay. You okay. are just so beautiful. I would have never in a million years guessed. And now our audience, not, that's maybe... This time my face is tired. Like, I had to work really oh hard to make it God. work. And so it's tired to enunciate. It's tired. And I can't whistle. I you know... Whistle. I have a feeling that, you know, our audience that's maybe only listening to us on Spotify is going to come on YouTube as well to see your beautiful energy and your gorgeous face, Wendy. You are just something rare, something one of a kind. You are such a golden blood in this world. I came up with such a great metaphor now. Oh, thank you about that. (laughs) I'm rare and precious. That's really cool. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful day, my friend, and thank with you. You made this happen. This only happened because you you started the ball rolling, and I'm very grateful for you. Thank you, Wendy. God bless you. Thank you so much for your amazing Look energy. Look at your feisty little girl. Going to her it's now. So good. She's going to be just like her mama. It's going to be great. Oh, yes. Thank you, my dear. My pleasure. Have a great day. <laughs>